Um, we're going to, I'm going to, how many of you were here on the Sunday when I came back from Iraq? Were you here and uh, you saw some of the videos and pictures? And then the following Wednesday night, I preached a message on, on um, faith versus fear. And, and I'm going to kind of combine those two messages a little bit this morning. And um, I'm really going to kind of take it the next step beyond. And this is one of those messages that no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter where you are in your faith, you can take something from this message and run with it. And it become a real practical part of your next step in life. So we're going to turn to the book of Second uh, Timothy. Let's do that. Amen. Second Timothy, we're going to start in chapter 1. If one of the host team can grab me a bottle of water, that would be great. That way I can try to not hack during the whole message. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 1. And uh, we, we, we read this scripture a couple of Wednesday nights ago, and so I'm going to read it again because this is kind of the foundation of what I want to talk about. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and of love and of discipline. Some of your versions will say, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and of a sound mind. Thank you, Mr. Jim. And so um, I want to kind of base this message off of that, that idea. The idea that there's two worlds, two worlds that are actively fighting each other around us. The world of faith and the world of fear. Are you with me? And so, these two worlds cannot coexist. Where there's fear, there is no faith. And where there is faith, there is no fear. Are you with me? And I want to kind of, I want to kind of, I want to kind of show you how these two worlds not only can't coexist, but I want to show you how you can begin, even more than I talked about a couple Wednesday nights ago, you can begin to enter in and live a life in the world of faith. Now, I'm not talking about your religious practice, because we say, oh, that's a person of another faith. I'm talking about your, not just your belief, but your action in the promises of God for your life. And so we're going to kind of flip this on its head a little bit. How you can begin to live a life of faith and what that looks like versus living a life of fear. And so I want to I kind of skip ahead for a moment. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12. And uh, let's go there for a moment, and I'm going to read this, and then this is all going to make sense. I promise, just stay with me. But faith, I'm sorry, fear, fear sees danger and sees potential tragedy. That's the world of fear. What can harm us? What the potential tragedy is? What can go wrong? What happens if I fail? That's living in fear. Faith sees unlimited possibility and sees divine open doors. It sees the possibilities in front of us and not the potential tragedy. I don't know about you, but I want to begin to see through the lens of faith. I'm tired of worrying about all the things that can go wrong. I'm tired of worrying about what happens if I fail. I'm tired of worrying about the dangers ahead. I'm not saying you ignore them. That's not what we're talking about. But I, I want to learn to live my life in a way where the lens that I look through sees the unlimited possibilities ahead. 
what, what might happen if I take that step forward? And so that's what I kind of want to explore today a little bit more in depth than I did a week and a half ago. And these two worlds, of course, cannot coexist together. And let's start in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. For God has allotted or given to each a measure of faith. We're going to combine this scripture with a story, a parable, that many of you probably have never seen these two combined. And when we combine them together, these, these truths, it's going to hopefully unlock something in your life that you'll walk out of here and be, I mean, just so excited about the possibilities. And so this scripture in Romans, it says that to each person, a measure of faith has been given. Now, we can draw some conclusions from this scripture. We can draw from this scripture that not every person has the same measure of faith. We can draw that, maybe that conclusion from it. Some of us have been given a measure of faith, maybe that's more than others. How many of you have ever taken the time to compare your measure of faith with somebody else and have been discouraged by it? You know, when you get around some of these greats, I mean, the, the great, the Billy Grahams and the Reinhardt Bonkies and these people that, you know, they, they believe they're going to go, they're going to go do a, you know, a crusade in Africa where they'll see, you know, 15 cities, 15 nights in a row and the smallest crowd be 3 million people. Think about that logistics and what it takes to do that in a third world nation where you have to bring in a PA system and a stage and delay towers and power to power all of that for 3 million people in a third world nation, 15 nights in a row in a different city every night. When I look at someone that has that kind of faith, I'm like, I'm just going to go up in my office and just, just hide, right? Because we've each been given a measure of faith each been given a certain measure of faith. Some may be greater than others. And so I want to take that scripture, we're going to move it over here for a moment, and I want to read this parable that many of you know, and we're going to look through the eyes of Romans 12 in this parable, okay? Matthew 25, I'm going to kind of give you a quick synopsis before we start reading. This is the parable of the talents. And this parable starts with a master who selects certain servants from his group. And he, he gives them each an allotment of his wealth. He gives one five talents. He gives another, um, he gives another two talents, and he gives another one talent. The reason I'm looking around, not because I don't know this, but somebody wrote down what that would look like. I think I just remembered off the top of my head. I don't know where I put the paper. That's okay. But some, some he gave five, some he gave two, and, 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 one, and one he gave five, one he gave two, and one he gave one talent. Now, when we look at one talent, we think, oh, that wasn't very nice of the master. He only gave the guy one talent. But you have to understand, one talent represented like something like 75 pounds of precious metal, of the precious metal or currency of that time. So if it was silver... It was 75 pounds of silver. If it was gold, if it was whatever it was, the precious metal of that time, it was 75 pounds of it. Now let's compare that to today. That would be the equivalent. If it was silver, it would be like $18,000 that he gave to the person with one talent. If it was gold, it was $19.1 million in today's money. So he didn't give the person with one talent nothing. 
They gave him something substantial. Now, granted, there was somebody else who had two talents and somebody else who had five talents, but he gave the certain allotments to certain servants before he went on a long journey. When he came back from the journey, this is where we pick up the scripture. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had two talents came up and said, Master, you've entrusted me with two. I've gained two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who received one talent came up and he said, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered him and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no sleeve. I'm a, a seed. I'm not going to go on for a moment here. So the person that had five talents invested those five talents, came back with five more. The person that had two talents invested those two talents and came back with two more. But the one that only had one, for whatever reason, and we're going to explore a couple maybe reasons why, we don't know for sure, but a couple reasons why he didn't so, or invest that one talent. But what we know for a fact is it says he was afraid. Now think about what I started with here this morning. He was afraid. He was living in the world of fear. And his fear held him back from taking a risk and taking a step of faith. Why? Because faith and fear can't coexist. Are you with me this morning? Think about this. Because of his fear, he did the safe thing. He buried it. Because he knew if he buried it, nothing could happen to it. And he didn't invest it or use it because he was so worried what would happen if he lost it. Or maybe, that might be a reason why. Maybe he was afraid to lose it. Maybe he was afraid to fail. Or maybe he thought that if he only gave me one talent, then he doesn't really think I'm going to do anything with it. So I might as well bury it and just have at least what he gave me back so that I don't disappoint me, him because obviously he only gave me one talent. Think about it. One of these things had to be going through his head when he decided in fear to bury that one talent, to not invest it. Something was different about him that the one that got two and the one that got five, that why did they decide to invest it and he didn't? All we know is he was afraid. And that fear could have come from a bunch of different places, but we know it was, it was fear. We know it was fear, fear of whatever, but it was fear that had him bury that one talent. Now here's where we take the whole thing and make it make sense. You ready? If God has given us each an allotment of faith in our own life, and we apply it to what we're extracting in truth out of the story, then you have to see here, the same response from the master and in our lives, the father, the same response was given regardless of how much was given. 
which means no matter what amount of faith that God's given you, whether you feel like you're a one-talent faith person or a two-talent faith person or a five-talent faith person, that that measure of faith, God still expects you to do something with it. No matter how insignificant you think the amount of faith God given, has given you is, or whatever excuse that you have, you still cannot operate in fear. Because the same response was given from the master, in this case, for each person. Now, I want, I want this to kind of just like totally boil down to today and real practical for you. For you and I. We walk around and we allow our comparison to other people, especially in church, especially in Christianity. We allow our comparison of our own gifts, our own talents, our own amount of faith, our own whatever. And we compare it to everyone else around us. And if somebody has more than us, we use it as an excuse to bury it and to not do anything with it. Or... We will take the amount of faith that God's given us, and because we're so afraid to fail, you know, our culture has been created in such a way where everything's about do the most, whatever makes the most sense, whatever is the least amount of risk, whatever is, you know, let's think this through. Let's not open ourselves up to any potential risk. Let's not do anything that might, you know, might not work out. Let's not set ourselves up for any type of potential failure. And our whole culture is designed around that. You know, our whole monetary system is designed about risk. Our, everything that we interact with one another with is designed around risk. Whether or not we get into a relationship, whether it's a friendship or an intimate relationship with somebody, it's designed designed around risk. Well, they've got this personality trait and that personality trait. Eh, they might be too risky because I remember I was friends with somebody else that had one of those three characteristic traits and this might not work out. And so then we pull away from relationship. Everything we have is constantly measuring risk. But the problem is when we take that and apply it to our faith, we oftentimes find ourselves complete, just completely taken out of the game and on the sidelines because we're not really willing to go to the edge of the cliff and take a step. And, and the thing is this, you're going to find this out. Maybe one day when we get to heaven, we'll find this out. I don't necessarily believe, even though I just got done preaching it, that there's some substantial amount of more faith given to one person versus another. I think it has very little to do with what you started with and so much more about what you did with it. Because think about it. If you had one talent, let's say it was gold and you had $19 million to start with. Whether you have 19 or 38, you have a good start. But you could bury it in the ground and not ever see anything happen to it. Think about that in the context of our own faith. Because if you live in fear, you will never ever see faith as an opportunity. You'll never see what's in front of you as an opportunity. You'll always think about how can I preserve what's been given to me. And I want to say this to you. I don't know necessarily how I know this. I'm sure I could find the scriptural basis for it if I worked hard enough. But I just know this is the character of God. When we get to heaven one day, I promise you God will never be upset with you because you tried and failed. How's that for freedom? 
He'll never be upset with you because you thought that it was his will to do something that was positive for the world around you and you took a step out and tried it and you fell flat on your face. He will never look you in the eyes and say, you failed me. You dirty, rotten son or daughter, you failed me. You wicked, lazy servant. The only one that the master got upset with is the one that refused to take a risk. Think about that. The only one that got called wicked and lazy, which wasn't very nice, wicked and lazy here, is the one that refused to take a step of faith. Refused to realize that what he had was valuable enough that he should do something with it. Refused to realize that taking a step of faith was, was worth the potential risk of falling flat on his face and failing and losing it all. At least he tried something. At least he did something. At least he realized that what he had was valuable enough not just to bury it in the ground and do nothing with it. And I want, to, I want to speak this into your life. Every single one of you in this building today has something of value that God has placed into your hands and has given you the opportunity to steward over it. And the majority of us, and I'll include myself in this category, the majority of us have taken what God has given us to steward and we have buried it in the ground and, 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 and we've taken the amount of faith that God has given us and for whatever reason, because of fear, of whatever kind of fear in our life, we've buried it in the ground and we've done nothing with it. I want to tell you a story. Want to hear a story? How many of you know who Nick Willenda is? Anybody impressed with that guy? If you're not, you're going to go in front of him next time he walks the wire, okay? Anybody watch his walk over Niagara Falls? Anybody impressed by that? 50 mile an hour gusts of wind, crazy stuff, right? Two inch wire. Two inches. Two inch wire. Well, I was... I. I I, when I watched it, I was so impressed. I mean, I, I, the whole time I'm thinking, I, I mean, I'm, my heart's racing. And I'm watching it on television. My heart was racing. And we actually grew up with Nick. So I hope he doesn't watch our podcast. <laughs> Nick, if you do, I'm, I'm weirdly glad that you do. But I don't want you to listen to this part. Because I, I was so impressed with Nick in Niagara Falls. I thought that was awesome. But I, I read this story that I'm going to tell you about right now. And I, I'm now less impressed with Nick Walenda. Isn't that terrible? How oh, dare I, the hometown hero. But let, let me see if you're less impressed after you hear this story. In 1859, June 30th to be exact, there was a gentleman by the name of Charles Blondin, who was a tightrope walker. And for months and months and months leading up to June 30th, he told folks, I'm going to walk over Niagara Falls over a tightrope. At the time, they didn't have the fancy Nick Willenda wires that they could string between cranes and find the perfect tension based on the distance and all that crazy stuff that they do. They just had a two-inch hemp rope, 1,300 feet long, that they tied around the base of the trunks of trees across Niagara Falls. And they said that the dip in it was so steep, you can see there, that's Charles Blondin. And on June 30th of 1859, about 25,000 people gathered on the banks on the American side, and about 25 or 30,000 gathered on the banks of the Canadian side as Charles Blondin began his walk across a two-inch hemp rope, 1,300 feet across Niagara Falls. Now, I will say this. Nick walked 2,200 feet, so we'll give him that. This was only a 1,300-foot section, so Nick did walk a, a wider spot. But he, he, he put this tightrope 1,300 feet across, and he walked over it, and when he got to the other side, the people cheered, and he says, do you think I can go back again? 
And everybody cheered, yeah! And he walked back the other way, safe, to the other side. For the next couple of years, he tried to keep one-upping himself. So for instance, one time he walked to the middle of the rope and he let down um, a, a smaller rope. He sat down on the wire, let down a smaller rope to the maid in the mist, the little boat down below. And they, they tied a wine bottle to that rope and he pulled it up and he took a couple drinks of it, poured himself a glass, took a couple drinks, lowered it back down, and then he walked the rest of the way. This is true. You can look it up. B-L-O-N-D-I-N. Look it up. Then he decided he was going to take a small stove that he carried across with him. He strapped it to himself, used the little bar there, and got himself to the middle. And when he got to the middle, he fried an egg. And then he lowered that omelet down to the people of the maid in the mist so they could eat. Another time, he walked across with his assistant on his back. You can show that picture. Are you, being, are you less impressed with Nick now? I'm sorry, Nick. I'm sorry. He walked across with his assistant on his back. Now his assistant's the crazy one, right? And then another time he did this, and this is where I want to kind of drive the, the, the point home of this story. Another time he took a wheelbarrow, and he, he, he strapped about 350 pounds of concrete block to the wheelbarrow, and he wheelbarrowed across Niagara Falls all the way there and all the way back. And when he got back to the American side with his wheelbarrow full of rocks or full of concrete, he, he, the place was going crazy. How could he do this? 25,000 people just going berserk. And he looked across the crowd and he says, how many of you think I could do this with a person in the wheelbarrow? Everybody went crazy. Yeah, of course you can. You did it with 350 pounds. You can do it. And then he said, which of you wants to volunteer? <laughs> now, as you can probably guess, nobody got in the wheelbarrow. Why? Because fear and faith cannot coexist. See, it's one thing to believe something, and it's another thing to have faith. Belief says you can do it, but I'll stay on the sideline, the banks of the river. And faith says, where do I get in? Do you see the difference here? Faith says get in the wheelbarrow. That's having faith. A lot of us believe that God is good. A lot of us believe that he has great promises for our life. A lot of us believe that he wants to see us prosper and do well. A lot of us believe that he's given us the authority to, to carry out his, 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 uh, his um, kingdom here on the earth. A lot of us believe these things. But when it comes time to get in the wheelbarrow, we're looking around to the other 24,999 people and saying, surely one of you is going to volunteer, Right? And whatever holds us back, I don't know what it is. Like I said, it could be the fear of failure. It could be we don't think what God's given us is enough or any, any of these things. But all I know is it's fear. It keeps us where we are. I guarantee you there were some people there that were maybe thinking about it whose feet probably felt like the concrete blocks that were strapped to his wheelbarrow. They couldn't move. They were paralyzed at the idea. Now they, walked, they watched him do all of these things. They watched him carry somebody on his back. They watched him cook an egg. They watched him with 350 pounds of wheelbarrow. But when it came time for them to put their life on the line and for them to actually risk something, they said no. Why? Because they didn't have the faith. Now here's the thing. I'm not asking you to put your faith this morning and to team up with Charles Blondin. 
I'm not asking you to take whatever measure or allotment of faith that God's given you and team up with him or even Nick Walenda, who we're all vastly unimpressed with right now, but you'll be impressed with the next thing he does. I am asking you to take your faith and to put it into the hands and the trust of the one that created the heavens and the earth. The one that spoke the world into existence. The one that formed you in your mother's womb. The one that knew you before you were even born. You were even in your mother's womb. I'm talking about the, the, the creator of all things. The great I am, the Jehovah God. That's who I'm talking about this morning. Can you have enough faith and trust him and get in his wheelbarrow when you know time after time after time he has not failed? That's what faith looks like. That's what transferring and taking and stepping out of a world of fear and into a world of faith looks like. It's the willingness to risk. And the reality is, no matter who it is across the, the, the history of our world, anybody that has ever had an impact on the world around them through invention, through, through, through a company they created, through whatever it looked like, through solving a medical issue, coming up with whatever we've seen over the years, anybody that has ever done anything to risk. Nobody sat at home thinking, I I'm going to create this little, you know, Edison didn't sit at home and say, I'm going to create this little, this little glass thing that lights up so that people can have light anytime they want and they don't have to, to use fire or torches anymore. He didn't sit at home and go, well, I just hope the invention just gets mailed to me or something. He had to risk something. He had to try something. Everything worthwhile of value throughout human history took somebody that said, I'm willing to risk. And folks, I want to expand this to the kingdom of God. Anything of value that we're ever going to do in the kingdom of God will happen because one person decided what God has given me, this measure, is enough for me to risk it and to stop living in a world of fear. And I, I, I left, and uh, you know, if you get sick of me referencing it, I'm sorry, it's going to at least have another year's worth of shelf life. I, I left and went to Iraq, and I had people ask me this question. Why are you going to a war-torn nation when you have kids at home and a wife at home? Why would you do this? And part of my answer was this. Because, number one, I know God asked me to do it, so I know that I'm in his will, and I'm going to step out and do it. But why was I able to push past the fear? And this is why. Because I, I told them this. I told folks, I told my parents this, I told other people this. I said, because I don't want to stand up in church on a Sunday morning and look the congregation in the eyes and say, you need to step out and risk it when I'm living in a life of fear. That's why. Now, there's nothing brave about leaving two kids and a wife without a husband and father. There's nothing brave about that. That's not why I went. But I went because I know God asked me to. And when God asks you to do something, you don't live in a world of fear. You live in a place of faith. When God asks you to do something and you know it's something specific for your life, you step out of the world of fear and into the world of faith and you put it on the line. Listen, if I were to give you the business plan, if I retrospectively wrote the business plan for this nonprofit organization here, if I retrospectively said, okay, I'm going to write the business plan out, you would say this is the dumbest, most ridiculously risk-heavy business plan I've ever seen. You wouldn't invest in it. You say, okay, so let me ask you this. You want to go in to the worst neighborhoods 
where the most crime is, where things are being vandalized and there's prostitution and there's drugs and the properties are in disrepair and terrible shape and there's open sewage and you name it. You want to conscientiously and intentionally go into these neighborhoods and buy up properties, put your money on the line and risk it all because you believe A, in transforming communities and B, in seeing, seeing lives actually transformed in those communities. So if I wrote this business plan for you that, that we've seen happen over the last, I mean, we look back now, we're like, we're geniuses. <laughs> Total geniuses. I mean, think about it. That, that, that neighborhood over here, we have literally systematically gone and bought every single dilapidated property. Didn't matter if it was 20 units or just a single house and saw it completely brand new, just incredibly well done, a remodeling, sometimes completely new construction. And now in those same properties, families and children and individuals, men and women's lives are being turned around. It sounds genius now. But that's the thing. Let me tell you this. That's the thing about when you step out in faith because you know God's called you to something and you take a risk. It sounds like a terrible idea when you do it. But in retrospect, you think to yourself, you know why? Because when you take the little allotment, that little measure of faith that some of us have despised and we've buried and we've, for whatever reason, because of fear, we've kept to ourselves. When you take that little measure and you add it to the exponential uh, anointing of God, when you take that little thing and you say, God, I don't know how or what, but I just know you're calling me to take a risk and I don't want to bury it anymore. I want to invest this into the kingdom of God. And you step out in faith and you do something and you add it to the promise of God. That is enough because with him, it's enough. With him, he takes it and he goes far exceedingly beyond what you ever imagined he could do. Faith has a way of multiplying what we think is insignificant into something that can change an entire neighborhood or a state or a nation. And there's only one way it happens. We step out of a world of fear and into a place of faith. And James 2, I think it's 26. You can put that up there. Is it 226? Yeah. It says this, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Which means this. I'm going to put it into a little bit different language because I've heard this scripture used a lot of different ways. But the most original definition or understanding of this scripture is this. Faith without action or acting on that faith is dead. And it's just like a body that doesn't have a spirit anymore. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral with an open casket. And you walk up and you, you know, they do their best to make the person look like the picture, you know. But almost every time you walk up, they're like, that, that's not them. That's not them. That's usually the first thing to remind. I'm just thinking, that's not them. They're gone. Their spirit's no longer here. They're gone. You ever, you ever seen that before at a funeral? You just think to yourself, they're gone. They're not here. They're not here anymore. It's just a shell. Just as, as dead as that is, the scripture says, so is faith without action. Now, I want to politely and gently say this because I'm preaching to all of us. Think about all of the things you believe but you have not acted on. 
the scripture says it's dead. The only thing that brings life to what you believe is when you take a step and act on it. Think about that. Think about the things that you know God's, God's asked you to do in your life. I can't answer that question. Think about the things that you know that God's asked you to do that you have not acted on. The Bible says that until you act on it, those things are dead. We oftentimes are looking for a sign to revive our faith or to revive that idea or to revive our action on it when God's saying, I'm waiting on you. I, I don't want to mess this story up, but when my brother and his wife, when Jim and Leah were wanting to expand their family with the two lovely flowers sitting over here, they had no idea how it was going to happen. They had no idea how it was going to happen. They didn't have the, the money. They, they looked at what, what, those, what adoptions cost. They looked at all of that. They said, there's no way we're going to, we know how to do it. And so, you know, you may be looking at a mountain like that and think to yourself, there's no way I can even begin to start doing this. So all they did, and correct me if I'm wrong, all they did is they opened up a separate account to begin saving for it. And they put $25, $25 in the account. Because they took that little measure of faith, they knew it was God's will, and they said, listen, we, we don't have all this, but we have this. And so I'm going to take this measure of faith, and I'm going to step forward with it. It's silly if you're looking at 25000 or 50000 you know, for, for, for something like that, and you take $25 and you compare what you have versus what you need. Most of us cower in fear and we go and bury it in the ground. But it takes that little step of action for God to know that you don't just believe it, but you're getting in the wheelbarrow. Are you with me? And so by opening up that account. Yes. So she said that they put the first $25 in and they elected to have $25 put in the account every month. And before the next $25 hit, God brought these two flowers, we call them the flowers, Gladiol and Haranya, into their family, and they met them within 30 days. By the time the next one rolled around, they had already met them, and God put them in their life. Now, I can't explain how that happens, but all I know is that when you live in a world of fear, you don't open up a bank account and start putting $25 away. That's a world of faith. And when you step out of the world of fear into the world of faith, you take these little steps of action and that action brings to life the faith. That action takes what was dead, what was that promise, that, that, that thing that God's put in your spirit and it breathes life into it and it comes alive in your life. And you leave from, from that nasty old world of fear into the beautiful life of faith. Where, where, where God actually takes what you give and blesses it and blows your mind. And I don't know how much the, the, that whole thing happened and how much it cost, but it didn't cost much from what I understand. Starts with a Z and ends with an Eero. And I'm not talking about the Greek sandwich, okay? So did you have that $25 left over when it was all said and done? <laughs> I hope you typed it. <laughs> you typed it. <laughs> so you see, God's not asking for you to figure out how to do it. He's just asking for you to leave the world of fear, step into the world of faith, and take that allotment and that measure of faith he's given you and risk it. Do something.
Amen? Amen? I don't know what time it is. I should have been looking. Oh, wow, 12.09. We can just dance around for a couple minutes now. You don't, yes? Yeah. Why don't you, t- uh, well, I'll try to do it. You can just mouth it to me what to say so they don't have to get the microphone. Those little steps of faith that started really with one single property. Those little steps of faith in that neighborhood. We now have eight properties there. And just recently, uh, the congressman, Congressman Vern Buchanan, recognized. I know, that's what I said. Congressman Vern Buchanan. If you want to get sick, you can use the mic. Yes. Of the United States. He's in, he, he's in Congress. He's a representative. He's not a senator. He's a representative. House of Representatives. He, uh, he recognized Harvest House. And what was the award? 16th the 16th Congressional District Service Award. He awarded Harvest House just this past week. Now, and it will be in, it will be in the congressional record in Washington D.C. forever. So, here, here, let me just let me throw this out there to you. If you started where we started with what we had, and you said one day you will be in the congressional record for what you're doing in this neighborhood that most of the county had forgotten about, let alone the capital of our nation that one day you'll be recognized for what you're doing. If you would have said that, anybody who had any sense would have told you you're crazy. And when people call, say that you're crazy, then you probably know you're getting close. And I know we, we use this as an example because it's so miraculous, but we're, we're gonna, is it May 11th? May 10th at 3.30, we're going to be opening the doors and cutting the ribbon on a place that is the pure expression. It is the purest expression of what faith in action looks like. And we're going to be doing a ribbon cutting for, first, for a, a beautiful playground in the back. Yeah. That Sally and her family are going to be dedicating. And then we're going to go around the front of the building and we're going to dedicate the whole property and it is such a beautiful, I was over there yesterday, they're putting in a white picket fence. It's like the American dream. And in, by next week, we're gonna have a video, just a quick little video of some aerial footage and of the befores and after. And when you see what, what it was before, and we show you what it looks like now. Folks, I don't, I don't want you just to say, oh, my church is so wonderful. I want you to say this, I want you to say, look what happens when I don't bury the measure of faith God's given me and I risk it. And I want you to be massively encouraged in your own life at what it looks like when you take that measure of faith and you risk it. Because this is a picture of it. And we'll be able to show you that uh, next week. And of course, clear your calendars for May 10th. If you got to get off work early, come kiss me. I'll get you sick. You'll have an excuse. All right? So will you stand to your feet? We're going to just pray together.